now presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcast? This is your favorite podcast host on your favorite podcast, The King of Stuff. Have a guest coming up to do an interview, Inez Felcher Stepman. You should follow her on Twitter if you aren't already. She has a lot of great content there. But uh, we just talk about how, I guess, traditional conservatives have changed, including both her and I. So let's get to that. And after that, I will chat about the news of the week. Here's that interview. One, happy to welcome back Inez Felcher Stepman, uh, wife of Jarrett Stepman, as she mentions on her uh, Twitter bio. She's a senior policy analyst at IWF. That's the Independent Women's Forum. She also hosts a great podcast on Ricochet, I might add, High News with Annette Step, High Noon with Inez Stepman. Um, and uh, first off, welcome. Great to, great to chat with you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, something that I noticed about you, and I know that uh, you were a Lincoln Fellow with the Claremont Institute, and I'm not sure what year that began. With me, it began last year. And kind of leading up to it, I was, uh, I don't know, I, I used to be stuck in the, hey, I'm a conservative running a 1994 mindset of, well, all we need is freer trade and lower taxes and everything's great. And as the world got crazier and crazier around me, I thought, wow, this leaves out a lot of stuff. When you look at uh, all of politics as just a matter of economics, uh, just looking as people as uh, little fungible units, just like you do green rectangles and dollar bills and uh, kind of started expanding it and saying, OK, I, I think a lot of uh, traditional conservative uh, conservatism, uh, which I, I guess you would just call Reaganism. Um, has just left out a whole bunch of other stuff um, that people are struggling with these days. So was that a change that happened for you as well over years? Or did you always kind of think that way and uh, think about things like national conservatism and what they talk about at those conferences? Sure. And and um, I think that's a, a sort of change in thinking that a lot of us have gone through. I certainly didn't start out in this part of the right um, as way more libertarian uh, in mm -hmm. college, for sure. I don't know if, how much of that was our politics and how much of that is just being in college. Um, yeah. Libertarianism tends to be a gateway drug to the right for a lot of people. Right, right. Um, and so I, I don't know how much of it, you know, but certainly in the last five years or so, and I actually really noticed it. Um, I had Tim Carney on. Uh, on my podcast about a year ago. And in order to do that, I went back and read his very um, enlightening work about the election of 2016. And um, at the time, in like 2015-ish, right, um, he was putting out a lot of this work basically saying Trump voters are um, disconnected from a lot of sort of the, the institutions. They're not regular churchgoers. They tend to come from broken families. Um and then also they have this view of the system as rigged, right? Which is something that back mm -hmm. then we used to associate with Bernie Sanders and the left. Um, mm -hmm. And it really struck me going back and reading in 2022 or maybe 20, the end of 2021. I can't remember exactly when I had him on and I was rereading this book. It struck me that a lot of the critiques that I heard leveled that he sort of um, – sort of uh, as, as an anthropologist collected uh, from Trump voters, now to me read as very obviously true about our institutions, about the system, um, uh, about the institutional rot uh, and the fundamental inability to, um, you know, both to be competent and to advance anything close to the truth. Uh, and here I'm not talking just about government, right? Um, I think that would have been easier for you know, sort of a Reaganite brain me to accept, but also about the private sector. And it's just, it seems to me that over the last five years, those things have come true in spades. We now look at, for example, agencies that the right once, you know, respected, law enforcement agencies like the DOJ um, and the FBI, and and we see how they behaved for four years under Trump. Um, we we think about like the media, which was always biased, uh, but, but it, the media's role in perpetuating actual extremely harmful lies like the, the Russia hoax, right, um, that very well may have guided U.S. foreign policy during the Trump administration. I mean, and I'm I'm no great fan of sort of the the 
seemingly perennial idea with every American administration of reset with Russia. Um, but but there was a very real constraint on what the president and the uh, you know and his foreign policy advisors could do because of the domestic perception created by something that was completely a lie. Right. That the that there were were, uh, you know, that the, the Trump campaign had deep ties with with Putin and and uh, that Trump was basically a Manchurian candidate. Right. Um, and and uh, that really constrained the ability of, of foreign policy um, elected of, of an elected president. Right. So, I mean, a lot of the things where I look back at it and then also looking in, into the economic side of things, the way that corporations have both advanced leftist cultural values in the last five years very, very clearly, and the proliferation within private companies of, let's just say, jobs that don't add a dime to the wealth of nations, right? Um, that seem purely yeah. sort of ideologically policing um, jobs, or in in the slightly better case, just, you know, email jobs, right? That, that very little actual concrete product is coming out of it. All of this added up to me to a deeper critique of our system um, and, and led me to think about some of the questions that Irving Kristol raised, I think, very presciently in 1973 um, in a talk he gave to, uh, I can't remember what the name of the society was, but it was at that time run by Milton Friedman and um, and before that had been run by Hayek. So uh, that that kind of the economic libertarian right. Um, so he was going into a hostile sort of audience when he gave this talk. Um, but the essence of the talk was we have to think about whether a free market um, liberty-based society can actually perpetuate the type of person who is capable of sustaining enough of the civilization in order to perpetuate the free market, right? Mm -hmm. um, in other words, he he points to the limitations of free market uh, ideology of actually solving some of these more classical, um, in some ways, more ancient problems of the polity, right? And problems mm -hmm. of po politics, capital P, um, and I think that was very prescient, and that's kind of how my thinking has evolved as well. The short version would be, you know, on the little, um, what is it, the, the political squares, like right, the authoritarian right. left, the author uh -huh. authoritarian right, all of this stuff. Um, there's this very funny meme where it's the uh, don't step on me snake coiled mm -hmm. in the libertarian corner, and then the boot from the authoritarian left coming down to step on the <laughs> snake, and then the snake rising up into the authoritarian right yeah. there. <laughs> like, this kind that's of perfect. Uh, that's that's that has very much been my intellectual transition over the last five years. <laughs> yeah, completely with me, too. Um, it, and I think also is if you look at politics from kind of an intellectual lens, it, I think that's the appeal of libertarianism. Uh, you can make everything fit in its nice little box. And nope, this is the right answer. This is the wrong answer. It, it's kind of um, I was one of the idiot nerds who liked math class so it's all very mathematical and and uh but yeah it you start to realize over time especially with uh the far left going you know completely losing their mind starting all this culture war stuff is you start realizing oh i've been measuring everything as economic units because you can actually measure those and it's easy to do that but there's much more to life than just uh, the economy. And yeah, a uh, free market, globalist free market would probably be good for the bottom line, but that's not what people mostly care about. They, they care about their families. They care about their neighborhoods. They wonder why the factory uh, down the street is shutting down and uh, the jobs are being outsourced to, um, I don't know, Burma this week or whatever country is uh, getting all the capital inflows. And uh, you just start realizing there's a lot more to life than just gross domestic product, I guess. And that changes your mind a lot, especially when you see the effects on people, as you mentioned with foreign policy as well, especially since 2000, just seeing our uh, brilliant, well-meaning, highly informed, compassionate elites getting every single issue wrong for 20 plus years, uh, you start going, maybe they don't really know what they're doing. And maybe they aren't as nice <laughs> as they're pretending to be because it's just, you know, the stock market drop in 2008, the Iraq war, we had that, um, the constant dithering on immigration and just letting that, you know, run rampant. On a, you know, I live in Arizona. So just seeing, you know, Oh, there's a family running through my backyard right now. So, um, yeah, so it's just a constant problem that our so-called elites who are saying, trust us, trust us, 
um, are the ones in charge of COVID and completely messing that up as well. And it's like, I don't think our elites are all that elite. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not against the concept of of uh, an elite in leadership, mm-hmm. but um, it seems like our elite not only has gotten so many things wrong in retrospect, uh, but has a certain arrogance uh, that is totally unjustified by the like midwittery that that seems to have been elevated. I think part yeah. of this is, is um, you know, we we have as, as James Burnham also presciently wrote about, but. We have transitioned away from a kind of rough and tumble capitalist economy into something that is more managerial, more bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. And, and the the thing about the the um, qualities of people uh, who rise in a bureaucracy are very, very different than the qualities of people that say like 19th century American capitalism were bringing to the right. fore. Right. Um, think about somebody like Andrew Jackson, who held uh, basically 12 different careers that we would think <laughs> about. Right. Um, yeah. You know, he he was a soldier, a general, a judge, a lawyer, um, a politician, uh, a businessman, like a planter. Right? <laughs> this mm-hmm. is like ten lives uh, um, by modern standards. And we now have, we have Pete Buttigieg. Right. Exactly. I've yeah. seen this as a good example. He is the <laughs> pinnacle of sort of um, what what qualities uh, are required for success in our kind mm-hmm. of heavily managed technocratic economy and society. So, like, I haven't changed my mind on the free market insofar as I think the free market is the best economic system for delivering mm-hmm. wealth and what people want. But it can't tell us what is good for people mm-hmm. to want, um, which impulses of the human condition should be encouraged or discouraged, right? Um, so in, in that sense, it just – it sort of depoliticizes politics, mm-hmm. Um it makes it a matter of of and, and this way it is sort of uh I think joined at the hip to some degree, at least psychologically, with with a kind of um turn of the century progressivism, where it fundamentally thinks that that there is a, a science of management and government that can mm-hmm. sidestep the normative questions of politics, where ultimately, you know, in any political unit, whether whether it's democratic or not, right, there's a good being advanced a good being defended, a bad being punished, right? Um, There are normative questions of politics that are totally sidestepped by a combination of of sort of neoliberal technocracy on the one hand and this sort of science of government and treating people like widgets that you're referring Mm to. Um, And then then on on the other hand, uh, these these questions are are sort of sidestepped, although I, I don't think inevitably so, but I think by a devolution of small L liberalism, um, that ignores a lot of the other impulses within the American founding and the American way of life um, and mm-hmm. and clings only to a, a, a sort of post-1960s even vision of small-l liberalism um, that I think is is not, can't be held. Like the center can't be held. Uh, yeah. And that's where mm-hmm. I find myself parting with a lot of even allies on some of these cultural issues um, mm-hmm. who come from the center left or come from the IDW um, because I just, I, I very much look backwards at the nineties and early two thousands and say, you know, wow, there, there was like, there were people in the nineties. We laughed at them. We called them, you know, rubes and knuckle draggers, but the, you know, Christian conservative, the moral majority that called every single one of the degeneracies that is happening today. And right. if anything, right. they were wrong the other way. They just thought it would take longer for us to completely devolve into, you know, um, defending grooming of minors. Okay. So they thought yeah. it might take a little longer to do that, but they they were right on all substantive matters. Um, mm-hmm. And and so then the question arises, you know, how were they able to see that in 1995? Well, maybe it is because this kind of uh, post-1960s liberalism um, really – it is there is no principled way to draw a distinction between the 90s liberalism and sort of social libertinism um mm-hmm. and the the one today that in fact if you grant this premise of of the radically self-defining like spark of the self that that mm-hmm. must be ab- above all things protected from any kind of um restriction or unfair undue influence whether from government or from um from society culture right to, to be able to discover your true self um that, that that inevitably devolves into you know 56 genders and and people um you know and i think by the way also devolves into a lot of unhappiness because it turns out that mm-hmm. eking yourself out 
of uh, whole cloth with no guideposts at all from family, from religion, from nation is not actually natural to the human person and and leads to a lot of navel-gazing and consequent unhappiness. Yeah, and just the atomization we see across our culture when everybody is self-defined, um, bringing in religion. If everybody is their own pope, um, <laughs> no, nobody can agree on anything. They're going to disagree about uh, every issue there is. And I think the limits, too, of kind of a hardcore libertarianism, one reason I never like joined the LP or anything like that. I remember uh, sitting next to an objectivist in college. There, I've only met objectivists in a college setting, of course, um, trying trying to win me over. Oh, we, you share a lot of our ideas. Let's get into this. And I, I didn't know much about Ayn Rand or any of that stuff at that age. But I could just see the, the inherent flaw was just this pure materialist perspective on things. And uh, the more I thought about it, uh, kind of a more pure I, – I have very libertarian tendencies. Part of it, growing up out West, it's – you kind of have the leave us a, the hell alone kind of conservatives. And so I have that libertarian instinct. But when you get into that as your entire life-affirming philosophy, it's materialist, just like communism. It, it It's like the only thing that matters is the material world uh, – Culture doesn't matter uh, unless you can just stomp on it with a boot again and have political commissars in every corporation. I'm sorry, HR reps. Um, but every organization has their own political commissar attached. You're allowed to say this. You're not allowed to say that. But when you reduce everybody to an economic unit, um, a unit of production, a lot is lost. And it, I'll, I'll follow all these accounts on Twitter about uh, – old architecture and why can't we build like this anymore um but a lot of it too is just uh things that are more important than politics are things like beauty and truth and the soul and uh yeah politics isn't going to fix all of it but you don't want politicians who are trying to stomp on that 24 7 which it seems like our political ruling class loves to do yeah, I mean, look, I, I take your point about that there has there is a Jeffersonian sort of impulse, and especially in the mm -hmm. West, there's sort of a difference between the big L libertarian and the small L libertarian impulses. A lot of people, um, and I've actually um, gotten into some discussions with people, again, sort of the the new right, um, you know, the people, and I actually haven't done this with Oren himself, but um, folks who, who tend more towards the Oren cast position on various policy issues, which I actually... It, many cases end up agreeing with with Oren on on some of this stuff and i think certainly we should be open to it uh, to thinking mm -hmm. through some of these policy consequences um but i do see one of the the central tensions of the republican party um nowadays is uniting i think different both um essential impulses and economic interests of the sun belt versus the rust belt right mm -hmm. where um actually small l libertarian impulses uh, are very much a part of the conservatism of Sun Belt, of Arizona, Nevada, mm -hmm. right? Even if you go like Idaho, oh, Mountain, Mountain West, West, right? Yeah, yeah. There is that like that. There is that sort of Jeffersonian impulse, and I, I don't think that's entirely wrong. I mean, I think that impulse, in some ways, did save at least parts of America uh, during COVID um, from a more uniform lockdown, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and I think post COVID, we should probably not be in a hurry to completely squash out that impulse. Is sort of foreign or illegitimate in our politics or even the politics of the right. So I do think it produces some good things. I, I don't know that it is a higher guide um, the, the way that some seem to suggest that it is. Um, but but the ultimate question in some of this, I, I see you kind of hinting at to me, is the um, is the question of whether the nation is anything more than an economic zone, right? Mm -hmm. Um and and even the economic zone part is is kind of difficult because what we've discovered uh, is that our elites and the elites of other countries actually might have more both interests and cultural commonalities um, with each other than they do right. with us. Um, and that's why I think you see a lot of the similar dynamics playing out in a different political context with a lot of different, mm -hmm. you know, um, countries. But but fundamentally, this kind of tension between um, an elite that really does not see itself as particularly tied to nation, a truly mm -hmm. globalist elite, um, and and with a certain set of of mostly um, 
of economic interests that that want desire further to blur the the na- national boundaries both economically and culturally to import cheap labor into the country and to export you know um to uh to offshore I should say is the right word for it, offshore costs of manufacturing right um and what I think what we're seeing around the world is is people at least confronting in totally different contexts for each each country confronting you know and asserting the the primacy of the nation state back into mm-hmm. this discussion that we actually haven't come to the end of history we don't, we haven't all agreed on this kind of palliative liberalism around the world um and and reasserting the fact that one that the nation state exists and is the primary uh you know sort of uh unit of mm-hmm. geopolitics um and and second that you know if you're in in the american context right that that the people are reasserting some ability to control uh, the destiny of of the country both economically and culturally right whereas a lot of these questions were basically pushed out of the political sphere altogether if you think about mm-hmm. major cultural turning points um in the last 30 years in america it's mostly been in the courts and the administrative state right, right? gay marriage congress abortion. isn't doing anything at all yeah right there's very there was very little that people were actually voting on um and i think you're seeing i hope we're seeing a, a, a sort of well I'll, I'll get to the pessimistic part in a minute but mm-hmm. i think we will see an attempt to reassert a kind of small d democratic power or at least a sort of self-determinative power um within nations and particularly within this nation yeah i i agree completely and yeah, I, I think something that really helped reveal it to a lot of people who don't pay a lot of attention to politics because they're too busy living their lives um, was the COVID. And when you see people, Davos agrees with Singapore, agrees with, I don't know, London and Washington, D.C. and Buenos Aires and Beijing, all of them are totally fine with the exact same <laughs> restrictions on people and uh, people in each individual country is like, oh, that doesn't work for us, you know? So you have that, you know, Sweden saying, no, we're not going to do this crazy lockdown. Uh, more recently, you see like the Dutch farmers uh, gaining just a shocking um, number of seats in uh, the Netherlands because people are trying to force EU green initiatives on them and basically say, to save the planet, we need to shut down all the farms, which is illogical on its face. And you also will see the uprisings like in Sri Lanka that was trying to play fair by the global elites rules that they set, and it's completely destroyed the country's economy. People are just saying enough is enough, and it's amazing to me that, um, well, first off, it's good that I think all the COVID insanity kind of peeled the mask off a lot of these things. And people, regardless of their political ideology, are looking through and saying, oh, wait, things have gotten really crazy, and it's not just COVID. It's all sorts of things. And that's why you can have... uh, Russell Brand hanging out with Joe Rogan, hanging out with Douglas Murray. You know, those two, those three people would not agree on anything five years ago. And now they're all like, oh, yeah, we're all seeing the same thing. This is nuts. Um, But I think that part is encouraging. Yeah, I I really think our politics is reshuffling, whether that reshuffling will ultimately impact, um, you know, what happens with the establishments of the two parties. I don't know. Um, in some ways, we have an advantage. Uh, I was just at NatCon UK, and um, mm-hmm. my husband and I were discussing something that uh, seems to, for our situation here at home, to be a bit more optimistic, you know, in comparison to to the one in the UK, because they're the parties control. You know, it's, it's all inter party right like so it's there's no like real rebellion within the party of replacing the establishment or it's very very Mm -hmm. difficult to do um our system obviously to some extent does allow for that kind of thing that's why you know the republican party ended up with with uh donald trump as a nominee in 2016 Mm -hmm. right um to some extent especially the republican party does allow some of that more than the democrats the democrats contrary to their name, have super delegates, um, yeah. much more stricter control over who is sort of allowed to run. That's why Obama could immediately lean on everyone to get out when it looked like Bernie was going to take the nomination there. Mm-hmm. Um, there there's no such figure in the Republican Party that has that kind of uh, that kind of power to push people out of the race like that. Um, but I, I mean, I'm somewhat pessimistic because like it seems like there's 
these real conversations happening, and I don't mean just on the intellectual, whatever, chattering class, right? Um, but it seems to me that that people, voters, are interested in questions of, you know, big tech power, for example. Um, they're they're interested in in, in questions about like mm-hmm. that, that seem totally out of our politics or not enough in our politics, like the the opioid crisis and and lowering um, the the life expectancy in in a, a first world rich country right mm-hmm. um it seems like there are a lot of these issues that people are talking about and recognize as serious challenging issues in the same way that they continue to recognize some of the issues from 2016 which were i think the issues that were sort of subterranean and being ignored by the establishment of both parties were immigration and trade those two things continue to be mm-hmm. part of that sort of bundle of issues but i mean then then you look at the the debates that we're having over you know even the debt ceiling and they seem very, very detached from one another, right? In other words, the yeah. real issues of, of of political concern to voters, or I, I don't know, um, I would add on this just the, the fact that everything seems not to work. I mean, you were kind of alluding to it, like right, the, our right. supply chains still aren't back to normal, like prices mm-hmm. of things are, are not only inflation, which we do talk about, but also like random fluctuations, random shortages, like there just seems things seem not to work uh, in mm-hmm. the same way that they did in 2019. Um, you know, all of these issues seem not to be addressed at all by either political party, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're avoiding these issues to it, it. It seemed like dispatches from 20 years ago reading about the um, debt limit um, story out of Washington because, oh, my gosh, we're going to default. It's the end of the world. And everybody's got to know. Most people these days are looking at it and going, oh, it's all fake anyway. <laughs> Or 31.8 trillion in debt or whatever it is this week. Um, this is just nonsense. You guys pretending and then out of the blue, Janet Yellen said, Oh, we actually have an extra week because the same weekend Joe Biden is going on vacation all of a sudden. Oh, look, oh, look, we we have a little bit of extra time. It's like, yeah, because it's all made up. I, I I know there's more that goes into it than that, but average Joe out there, you know, it's something that I've noticed too in the past few years among apolitical friends, guys who used to save up and spend money on, oh, I'm going to get a new pair of jet skis or something. Now they're digging wells on their property. You know, it's people are like, okay, I got to hunker down and I got to be ready. And these are not you know, survivalist, nutty people. They live in, I would say, the exurbs of Phoenix kind of a thing. But people are like, oh, nobody is coming to save us. I just need to be prepared and know what's what. And the the good way to deal with this is, okay, I'm going to get closer to my family. I'm getting more integrated in my, with my neighbors, with um, community efforts. Um, but then you have the dark side, which a lot of us are concerned about, is the atomization People just sitting on their phones all day scrolling. I, I couldn't tell you how thrilled I was when my eldest daughter said, I feel bad when I use Instagram. So she just deleted that, deleted Twitter. And I'm like, good. Okay, good. <laughs> good deal. I'm glad you noticed that it just is this envy machine that makes you feel bad about yourself. Um, but what do you think for the future? Because the choices between the two visions seem very stark. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I'm not I'm not clear that, that it is on on the actual voting level that mm-hmm. because it doesn't seem like those stark differences are actually reflected in the parties. People yeah. people are always whining about polarization. To my mind, there is not enough polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in, it, the polarization is a reflection of deeply different visions. And I, I think this this really to your point about the digging, digging wells and like preparing for in some fundamental way. Of a country to go off the rails, like mm-hmm. um, how badly I don't know, but you know, there, there does seem like um, to me, it felt like we lived through regime change uh, mm-hmm. in 2020, right? Even even aesthetically, we saw you know one set of statues come down, new set go up. Um, we saw very clearly the the um, total uh, two tiered justice system, right? Where mm-hmm. You had an entire summer of uh, people burning and looting in in cities. I mean, I 
I was in Washington, D.C. I remember I saw it with my own two eyes. You cannot tell me it didn't mm-hmm. happen. I was standing um, on the roof of the apartment building that I lived in in northwest Washington, D.C., looking around the city. And there were something like eight or nine different fires burning and like massive fires burning in the city. Mm-hmm. Right. There were absolutely no consequences and no law and order applied. Um, most of the mayors told the and, and most states told their uh, police forces to stand down and their National right. Guard to stand down. Right. And basically mm-hmm. allowed this to happen. And then on, on the flip side, we see the like every jot and tittle and sometimes beyond that of the book, you know, thrown at every person who mildly wandered into the Capitol, not even saying committed other crimes. Right. Yeah. Of which there were some who committed serious crimes and were prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, but even somebody who sort of w- blindly wandered through the Capitol after like the the barriers had come down, we're seeing them prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. In many cases, you know, more than a year in pretrial detention, which is not supposed to happen and is justified mm-hmm. by COVID or whatever, but very, very clearly. And then we um, couple that with the memos from the FBI about concerned parents being potential domestic terrorists, the way that mm-hmm. the FBI is is categorizing uh, both white supremacy and domestic terrorism, and also opening all of these cases, quote unquote, um, in all of these. Uh, Andy McCarthy has a really great uh, explainer about this, by the way, but that they, they're they generating the statistics that they need to do the, the current to continue the crackdown mm-hmm. against, quote unquote, you know, white supremacy and domestic terrorism being the, the number one threat, uh, domestic threat yeah. to the United States. And they're doing that by essentially treating what was once considered basically one case. Um mm-hmm. Oh, one batch of cases, they're opening each of these individual cases and they're counting them in the statistics. Basically, for anyone who was related to anything in January 6th, right? Um, right. And that's how they're creating this this impression that they then testify to Congress and say, well, our, our domestic terrorism cases are up by 300% from last year. Well, yeah, because you're opening all of these cases and that, that you never <laughs> would have opened three years ago and counting yeah. them as multiple cases. Um in any case, that that was a, a bit in the weeds, I think, or uh, rambling mm-hmm. a bit. But I think that feeling of the two-tiered justice system, all of that, that really makes you feel uh, like a dissident and not like an, a, a domestic opponent, right? Like mm-hmm. it makes being on the right feel uh, in in a very like tactile way, like there are no real solutions through mm-hmm. ordinary means of politics. That's right. that's that's a very dangerous place for the country to be um mm-hmm. i sometimes am amazed by how blase the left is about stepping on the right's neck in this country and they, mm-hmm. i don't know that they think i don't know if they've never met any guy with a bunch of guns in arizona um right. <laughs> but how long they think they can you know step on this guy's neck before he responds in kind right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. It, it it's a it, i i kind of agree at least mentally with the the feeling um of that we we fundamentally we live in a different country than we did even five or ten years ago right and even jfk had some quote and i'll just uh summarize it here but he said any society that doesn't allow peaceful change to happen is inviting violent revolution and you know this is jfk saying that it's like you need to be able to let people have a voice and it seems like the goal of uh, this entire elite class, multinational elite class, is just to get rid of everybody's voices because they know it's best and they're smart. And then when it's time to prove their intelligence, they fall flat on their face. And it's just like, okay, you people can't think your way out of a wet paper bag. Why am I? Why am I uh, substituting my own common sense for your silly little agenda? And uh, your moral panics that change year to year, you know, this year it's trans, before that Black Lives Matter, before that COVID, before that Me Too, before that climate change. There's always, it's like um, I used to do marketing. So it's like every summer has a new marketing pitch. And in this case, it's why America's horrible and everybody, all hands on deck, we all have to run around screaming about this issue. And uh, so now you say, well, it's very important to let 50-year-old men um, hang out in a bathroom with little girls. And it's like, well, wait a minute, wasn't Me Too just three years ago? No, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter anymore. Now we're on this new thing where uh, the only thing that matters is making sure a 50-year-old dude can uh, share a bathroom with a little with a little girl. And uh, I, I, I hope a lot more people are waking up and saying, okay, this is crazy. 
Yeah, but that, that's kind of what frustrates me sometimes in a cis course. Is like nobody even has the, or I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people seem to even remember what happened three years ago, right? Mm-hmm. You just gave a litany of all the current things, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. contradictory, and it, it, there's a lot of this. This is to return maybe to some of the subject from the beginning of of like where the right should be and and the need to take a sort of normative stance that doesn't mm-hmm. slip over time. I mean, that's the frustrating thing about being on the right, right? It, you, there is this real and actually provable sense that at least culturally we're slipping left and left and left all the time. Um, and, and that, you know, yes, there was a backlash, just like, for example, with gay marriage, there was a backlash against gay marriage when it was, you know, mm-hmm first floated as an idea, easy to forget, right? That even in California, gay marriage went down in flames, right? Even among mm-hmm. the Obama voters, it was very, there was a cultural backlash to that mm-hmm. idea that has completely melted. Mm-hmm. And and so when I see people, for example, feeling very optimistic and using phrases like quote unquote peak woke, like there there's a real mm-hmm. backlash to this stuff. I agree that there's a backlash. The question is whether that backlash, that each step of this game has had a backlash. Mm-hmm. The question is whether that backlash can be sustained enough to confront sort of its institutionalization and and, and bureaucratization, if that's a word, of, mm-hmm. of these, this ideology to actually assert itself to pass normative, positive policy that prevents this from happening in the future, right? Whether there's actually a serious and sustained um, response that takes into account looking backwards for the last 30 years and how each of those backlashes has failed. And that I don't really see, at least from the Republican Party. I don't see that. I don't see that like sustained, strategic, thoughtful way of, okay, so how do we, the right, actually institutionalize our ideas so that we don't get steamrollered over time by these these um, leftist ideas within these institutions because we have come to a crisis point by doing that. And so now the question is not just do 80% of people in a poll or 75% of people say that it's ridiculous for a 50-year-old man who claims that he's a woman to shower with 11-year-old girls, okay? Um, I, I believe you, you can get very strong polling on that issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, are we willing to pass laws um, both in the state and federal level, are we willing to actually convert this into concrete policy? Are we willing to um, set up institutionally the ability to fight this idea in the future? Because if not, then 10 years from now, or even five years from now, things go faster now, um, mm-hmm. You know, we'll get a, a, a Republican politician who says, well, of course we respect trans rights, but right. this next, but but furry rights are uh, you know, yeah. a step too yeah. far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and backlashes. You know, by definition, a defensive measure, uh, we're going to have to take to the offense pretty soon. Inez Felcher, Stepman, thanks so much for being on. Where can people find your work? I'll be including links in the show notes. Um, You can find my work and my colleagues work at Independent Women's Forum, IWF.org. You can also find me on Twitter. It's at Inez Felcher, I-N-E-Z-F-E-L-T-S-C-H-E-R. You can also just search Inez Stepman. It comes up. Yeah, she's great. Everybody follow her and everything she does. Thanks so much for being on. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks to Inez for uh, stepping in. Just want to cover a few of the things going on in the news. Uh, One, the GOP race, there's still people declaring themselves. Look, I I think I said on last last week's show, it's a Trump-DeSantis race. That's it. That's about it. Um, Asa Hutchinson was being interviewed by CNN asking, so why are you still in this race? According to the polls, you're only at 2%. Then he started bragging that, well, actually, uh, one of the early primaries is South Carolina, and there I'm I'm already in seventh place. He, he thought that was a good thing. He's like, look, the dust hasn't settled yet. Um, I, I don't know why you guys are worried about my low po- poll numbers, because the dust hasn't settled um, Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, 74-year-old, 72-year-old, something like that. Um, dust is pulling better than you. Okay, let it go. Um, but that's not all. Another person who's kind of a milk toast um, Republican, Sununu, the governor, well, I guess former governor now of, uh, oh, I think he's the current governor. I just uh, pulled up a news item here. Governor Chris Sununu, uh, Nepo baby extraordinaire. A very bland guy. Uh, He's still thinking about jumping in. He also was on CNN and uh, was chatting with Jake Tapper 
um, saying, yeah, I, I think I might be jumping in. I'll know in the next couple of weeks. Guys, stop. You're not going to win. Nobody wants you. Okay. Three people at dispatch want you and two people at the bulwark want you. No one else wants you. Why are you wasting our time? Uh, please stop. And one uh, perennial favorite on this podcast is uh, San Francisco, the Bay Area in general. Um, the shoplifting is continuing. It's getting very bad right now. The Old Navy flagship store. Now, Old Navy is owned by The Gap. Gap is famously based in San Francisco, so so is Old Navy. So their flagship store, of course, is in this uh, very big shopping area of uh, downtown San Francisco. It used to be really nice. Well, now everybody's closing one after another after another. Well, Old Navy has just uh, shuttered their flagship store in downtown San Francisco. They're like, we can't do this anymore. And uh, just a reminder, here's who they're joining with all their big fancy stores that were most of them in the same area. Whole Foods shut down Nordstrom's 300,000 square foot Nordstrom's. It was a huge store. Nordstrom's shutting down. Office Depot shutting down. Anthropology, Sex off Fifth Avenue, um, several other companies are also dropping. And why is that? Well, yeah, a big problem we're having is just massive shoplifting and guarantees by San Francisco government that they will not prosecute um, thieves running through the stores, clearing shelves, and just racing out into the street. Um, a good example of this is, uh, I think this was in Berkeley. It was definitely in the, yeah, it is in Berkeley. It, it was definitely in the Bay Area. So they're east of San Francisco across the Oakland Bay Bridge there. Um, they had an Apple store there. Now, once again, Bay Area, home of Apple, a California icon, if you will. Well, a bunch of thieves went in there. In, in like three minutes, they cleared $50,000 of merchandise and uh, when a store uh, worker there told them to stop stealing $50,000 worth of devices, they said, you can't stop us. Um, and this is true. They took off. They ran off, drove off in a car. One cop started following them, but then lost them. Turns out the car, it was like a minivan. It had been carjacked. So they also did a carjacking earlier. So they recovered the vehicle later. But uh yeah, guys, no, there's going to be no business left in the Bay Area if you keep this up. This uh, president of, um, actually, the they also closed in San Francisco and in Portland. Giant Food um, is a grocery store chain. Um, I haven't heard of it, but apparently they have 165 supermarkets. He says that at his stores, shoplifting has risen tenfold in the past five years. Ten times as much shoplifting. As five years ago, something is uh, seriously broken here. And I know a lot of people um, on the D side of the ledger think that it's all fine and people are just going to sit here and take it. It's not going to go well. You need to enforce these laws. Uh, you're chasing people out of business here. Some international news. This is actually uh, good news for Spain. Uh, now, Spain used to have a conservative, like a center right government back in the early 2000s. And since then, the socialists have more or less run things in that country. Well, they just had an election, and uh, the the socialist party there has been ruling. They're the majority party in the Spanish parliament. Well, uh, with about 95% of the votes counted, they were kicked out of office, essentially. It was a huge, epic defeat for them. The country is broken into 12 regions. I guess you consider them like states. 12 different states. and so. They will retain their majority by very tiny margins in three of those 12. So a quarter of the country still is slightly 51% socialist, but the rest is all going to a conservative party called the People's Party and uh, who are in coalition with what the press is calling the far right Vox Party, which means they're probably uh, to the left of your average milk toast Republican. That's what uh, far right means these days. But uh, it's pretty interesting. Sanchez, um, it was his government, the socialist government, and uh, he is uh, basically being tossed out on his ear. The new guy who appears like he will take over is Alberto Nunez. Let me see if I can pronounce this last name. It, okay. It's F-E-I-J-O-O -O with an accent over the second to the last O. 
So I have never seen that before. It means reminds me of feijoada, which is a similar spelling for a Brazilian meal, Portuguese, of course. But uh, yeah, good good job, Spain. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, this is the first. Uh, well, this is the last in a long list of this that's happening. Similar thing happened in the Netherlands um, like a month ago, probably before that. The same thing happened in Sweden before that. The same thing happened in Italy. So um, I think the EU is going to have to reevaluate their plans to um, control all these countries and take sovereignty away because Brexit was only the tip of the iceberg. It has been continuing ever since. The big news in politics, of course, is the debt limit deal. And I just don't care about it at all. People are freaking out about it. But kind of like I said in the interview with Inez, it just all, it's all kabuki. It doesn't really matter. We're 31 plus trillion dollars in debt. And, uh, oh, we're only going to raise the debt limit by a billion trillion dollars. It's like, well, what's the point? This is all made up numbers at this point. Um, nobody's serious about cutting government. And that includes both parties in that. Uh, there's a couple outliers, uh, someone like Thomas Ma- Massey. Um, representative from Kentucky, but there's very few people who actually want to take any of this seriously. So uh, despite despite all the dire warnings from the media, it's just nonsense. It's doing nothing to attack the main issues going on. It does nothing to address the insanity when it comes to entitlements. So um, yeah, it's hard to get too animated about this fight. And should you support it or oppose it? I think the government needs to stop spending for two years. That, okay, now you're taking it seriously. That's the kind of root and branch stuff that people need to be talking about in D.C. And when they're talking about, oh, we only, we want to slow down the growth of our debt by a hair or by two hairs, I don't really care. It's hard to get too excited about it. And one other thing, too, that I've really noticed, a lot of people are noticing it on uh, Twitter. Now that Ron DeSantis has declared officially all his, uh, Big fans and especially campaign staff and stuff can finally start kicking back. Uh, Trump has been attacking DeSantis for like, what, five months straight? You know, every day it's another attack. And uh, response from DeSantis has been rather muted because he hasn't officially declared. Well, now they're just unloading with both barrels. And then you have a bunch of, okay, if it's your job as a campaign staffer, eh, say what you need to say. You know, that's your job. But all these other people jumping in and just trying to say, if I support candidate A and if you support candidate B, you're evil and a monster and I hate you and I will never support that candidate. Guys, guys, people have different opinions. It's not that big a deal. I I don't know if these people just are surrounded with people who only agree with them or are afraid to say what they actually think. But my entire life, I've been surrounded by people who disagree with me. I all have friends who are Republicans and we all want a different candidate in a certain year, whatever the year. And then tons of Democrats. And then probably the biggest number of people who just don't care one way or the other. Relax. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You don't need to hate everybody because they disagree with you right now. Long way to go. This is very early. And for people to uh, destroy friendships this early because they agree with campaign staffer A over campaign staffer B, come on, relax. It shouldn't be this important what's going on. Yes, um, the election is important. There's a long way to go. All of us feel like we don't have a whole lot of allies. You need every friend you can get. So uh, try to build bridges instead of burning them down. That would be great. A little personal advice there from Uncle John. And I want to get to the song of the week. I I was going through new music, stuff released this month, basically. Horrible. Every single release in the past. Four weeks has been horrible. There's my general music reviews. One song popped up, though, on random on Spotify for me. So I went, oh, I'm going to pick that. I've never mentioned them. There's this band in the mid-80s. Who knows where they are now? They probably reformed, broke up, reformed, broke up. Maybe they're on a tour of cruise ships right now. But uh, a rather obscure band. I think they got airplay in uh, the UK. Prefab Sprout. Yes, it's a bad name. It's supposed to be a Monty Python reference, but I don't know what it's referencing exactly, what skit that might be, but it was like kind of this hyper-literate, spazzy, you're not supposed to say spazzy anymore, sorry, spazzy pop, um, very great lyrics, very catchy, catchy as heck, and they had a great album called Steve McQueen, and this track is from it, 
and it's called Fair and Young. came out like 85 or something. I know I heard this back in the day. You know, I would have been in the Navy, like say late 80s, maybe when I was in college, early 90s. Um, I know I heard this a couple times on the radio, but I never knew who sang it until the glories of the internet where I could find anything. I could just type in half a lyric and figure out who the heck sang it, but um, did not get much airplay here. You know, I'd be listening to like college radio or something and hear it once and then they would never mention who the heck it was. But um, great song. Actually, the story behind it, um, I read about how the guy wrote it because the lyrics are so odd and interesting, especially the intro. Uh, the main um, lyricist and vocalist was uh, on a drinking binge with his buddies, and, and he bragged that I can write a song using any word. Just throw out a word, and that'll be the first word, and it'll be the greatest song you've ever heard. You know, just a little liquid courage going on here. And one of his friends said, antiques, start a song with antiques. So what he came up with is, well, you might have just heard that if you could get through his accent. But antiques, every other sentiment's an antique, as obsolete as warships in the Baltic. And then it goes through. And uh, maybe it's my Navy background, but I love as obsolete as warships in the Baltic. Uh, I've been reading some Napoleonic war stuff. And that used to be a going concern. Now, not a lot of warships in the Baltic. So very fun band. That song and album were actually produced by, or she blended me with science, Thomas Dolby. So a little uh, useless trivia for you cool cats out there. And that is it for the show. Remember, you can watch the interviews on YouTube, on Rumble. I have links to um, get to my channel there. In the show notes, remember to uh, rate this. Give it five stars. Be really appreciative. Subscribe on YouTube really helps uh, get the message out there. But thanks for listening. And uh, we got a guest lined up for next week. Talk to you then. Ricochet. Join the conversation.